since we've uh, looked at Matthew 24. Uh, the last time I was with you, we read Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. And we noted in those verses that what Christ is speaking of, not a multitude of signs, but one sign. One sign. So now we're in verse 15, and we're going to get into this a little bit. Thank you, so appreciate it. Uh, we're going to look at verse 15 and uh, through 20. We're going to look at this idea of the sign that Christ is talking about. We have to understand the audience in whom Christ is speaking to. He's speaking to Jewish Christians. And as I noted last time, this temple, the city of Jerusalem, is the epicenter or the epitome of what makes a Jew a Jew. Now, Christ is getting into this whole idea of the destruction of the temple. He says here in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of, through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. This abomination of desolation is not something that is brand new that Christ is speaking about. Um, as Danny noted last week, the abomination of desolation took place when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a ruler of Syria, of that northern area in the Middle East, there was conflict between Syria and Egypt. Antiochus, wanting to solidify the border, wanting to solidify Judea into Syria, went and set himself up as a ruler, and conflict ensued. Judas Maccabeus is heralded as the Jewish hero. He institutionalized guerrilla warfare, so to speak. He went in and wreaked havoc with Antiochus Epiphanes. Just giving you a little bit of history lesson here. So, so long story short, to reign in control to tighten that grip. And Picus went into the temple and defiled it by sacrificing swine upon the burnt offering altar. It took, as Danny noted, it took three and a half years after Antiochus Epiphanes was defeated, it took him three and a half years to get that temple back to being holy. The holiness of God is a very serious thing. As we noted this morning, as we read about the attributes of God, three and a half years to get the temple clean. But anyway, he defiled the temple. AD 70, which is in the future, Christ has not gone to the cross yet, getting close. His disciples were nervous. They were asking questions. This talk about going to, to a place without them had him nervous, had him scared. And now throwing more coal onto the fire, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now they're really scared. Where are we going to worship? The very thing that we have grown up with, knowing that this is the place where God resides, is not going to be around anymore. What, what are we to do? What are we going to do? Christ says, when you see this happening, it's the beginning. It's the beginning. Let the reader understand. He tells him in verse 4, in the previous verses that we read, after they asked that question, 
What is a sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. See to it that no one misleads you. Let the reader understand. There's only one way that we can understand what God is telling us here. That's by reading. Jesus makes a reference to Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12, speaking about the abomination of desolation. The thing about prophecy is this. When the prophet receives that prophecy, he sees it in the near future, and he sees it at the end of the age or in a later date. So in Daniel chapter 9, if you want to turn there with me, let's look at that for just a second. Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 27. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And then in chapter 11, we see it again, verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary, fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up abomination of, des of desolation. And then chapter 12, verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So he was speaking of a near future abomin abomination of desolation and the one that Christ is speaking of. The thing about the one that, that happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, the temple was restored, right? It was Continued on. The one Christ speaks of, that's the end. No more, right? And we can already see the significance of that from our standpoint as Christians, right? The end of the sacrificial system, the end of the temple is a doing away of the old. It is complete. There's no longer a need for types and shadows. There's no longer a need for a man to worship God in a physical building. Now, we do come together corporately to worship in a physical building, but our spiritual being, our spiritual worship is not in this building. It is with God and God alone through Christ, right? This temple, now, not to, not to belittle the Jewish Christians and, and tell them to suck it up, buttercup. <clears throat> we have to understand that for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, the temple was the place to go and to hear sermons or hear the word of God preached, uh, to fellowship, uh, to worship. It still served as a place of worship. But then the grand scope, it had to be done away with because sacrifices of animals are done away with. Christ came. He was the end of all sacrifices to make to make desolate um, to abominate 
to defile, make something dirty, and to make it desolate means to be utterly done away with. It's not coming back. There's not a plan B. Uh, those who have been steeped in dispensationalism, pre-tribulation, rapture, all the things that are attached to it, there's a plan B that God's going to restore the temple. He's going to build the temple. We had a discussion about the red heifer <laughs> being recreated to be slaughtered so the ashes will be utilized in the temple. When that temple was destroyed, it was destroyed completely. If anybody knows anything about Roman history, Rome was merciless. They were brutal. They were vicious in their tactics. When they were told to go and destroy, sack a city, yeah, it was it was utterly sacked. If you were in that city, you were considered an enemy. That's why Christ tells it. Go. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about your money. You got tucked away in mason jars. Under your bed. Get out and go. You see the dust on the horizon. You don't need to wait till you see that dust. Go. Flee. Get out while the getting is good. Because when Rome comes, the city is going to be completely surrounded, besieged. People will starve to death. After they have starved, they will come in and kill whoever is remaining and burn the city down to the ground. And that temple, just as Christ said, not one stone will be left upon another. Titus came in, he leveled the city, and he leveled the temple, and not one stone was left upon another. It was completely wiped out. He took back to Rome all the precious metals, all the precious stones, Everything of any kind of value was taken in the name of Caesar and hauled back to Rome. Now, if we are talking about that the temple has been done away with, there's no more sacrificial system left, then what makes it abominable? What makes the act of what Titus did abominable? Think about it. They held their standards as they marched. The legions were marked off by their standards. And on that standard was an emblem, a picture, an image of Caesar. Everything was done in the name of Caesar. So you see the abomination? The image of a man comes into a place where God is worshipped, where God is honored. And that symbol, that image is set up. And it's an abominable act. We read in the commandments, right? We're not to have any image of God in the likeness of man, creature, or of anything, right? Caesar is heralded, held, and is given glory for the destruction. It's an abominable act. It's a, it's a slash against God's moral law, right? But he tells them, so don't waste time. If you're up on top of your house, go. Get down and go. Move, make tracks, burn that road up out of there. Do not waste your time. Whatever you've got, it can be replaced. You just need to get out. We look at Noah, for example. Genesis chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there, we'll just read there briefly. The point that I'm illustrating here is that God 
provides a way out. He gives a way out. Noah was commanded to build an ark, right? The people of this world do not know what rain is. Don't know what floods are. The waters are held back in the deep and above. Everything is watered accordingly because of the moisture in the air and so forth. No idea what a flood is. No idea what rain is. Noah, what you building over there, man? I'm building an ark. For what? There's going to be a flood that's going to come. You have lost your ever-living mind. A flood? What do you mean a flood? What does Peter tell us about Noah? He was faithful, right? He was a faithful preacher of righteousness. He preached righteousness to these people. Repent. The judgment of God is at hand. Don't mock. Repent. Return to God. Turn to him. And we are told why the judgment came, right? Verse 5, chapter 6. The Lord, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Continue on. Verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the, the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor. There's the justice and here's the mercy. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Judgment's coming. The flood is coming. Noah, you are a blithering idiot. There's no way in the world water is coming. You're crazy. You've lost your ever living mind. But what did he do? He was faithful to what God commanded, and he built the ark. The ark is a picture of Christ, the way of escape from this judgment, from this wrath. Where was the mocking when the waters came? Where was the continual insults as the waters rose, as that ark was sealed up with those eight people? Nobody was laughing then, were they? Then if we turn to Genesis 19, Genesis 19, we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Adam, I mean, excuse me, Abraham pleads with God. Lord, would you save the city if there were 50 righteous people in that city? God said, I would. I would. What about 40 and on down? And finally, we get down to 10 or 8. And God says, I will save the city just to get those people out. God sends two angels to Lot and his family, telling them to get out. You've got to go. Meanwhile, the crowd outside the door is in a frenzy, a lustful, rageful frenzy, desiring the two angels that are inside that room, in that house. 
You ain't got time, Lot. Get your stuff. Let's go. What did ha- what happened? He had to be drug out, right? But God provided the escape for Lot and his family. And they got out. See, we've been reading in the book of, or we've been going through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has been written all along. It was just laid upon John to write it out. The revelation of Jesus Christ is all throughout history. The redemptive plan that was before the ages of the world was set in motion. We alluded to it this morning in Sunday school. That redemptive plan, I don't understand it all, but I praise God. I praise God through that redemptive plan that he decided to send his son it was decided among the Godhead that the second person of the Godhead would come and be a man, humble himself, become a man to bear the wrath that was supposed to be for me and for you. It was a gift, it was a free gift. But Lot got out, his wife and his family, the fire and brimstone fell and melted the cities to the ground. Melted them to the ground. We read, we've been doing our Bible study in 1 Kings. We have seen the wrath of God in the form of civil unrest, a government that is unrighteous, ungodly, and everybody is running amok, doing their own thing. But God provides a way out. God has provided a way out for his remnant, for his elect. And here in our verses at hand, Christ is telling them, you've got to go. You've got to run. Jerusalem is changing its status. It is no longer the seat or the place where man will go and worship. It's going to become just like a city amongst all the nations, just another city. What did Christ tell the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He says, there will be a time and an hour where a man, where men will no longer worship on that mountain and where the temple stands. So as we read this, this is what Christ is driving at. The temple's gone. It's going to be number eight. It will no longer be here. And you've got to make plans to get out. You've got to make escape. Try to catch up with my notes here. Escaping. Is important, especially, you know, we look at people who live out west, and really, you know, as well as any of us, you better be looking for low ground when a tornado comes through. Destruction from a tornado is complete, it is utter. People lose everything, it's destructive. God's wrath is complete, it is destructive, and He uses any means that He desires. It's his creation. Fire, brimstone, water, humans. The wrath of God has fallen upon Jerusalem. And it is a picture. It is a picture of the judgment and wrath that is to come. We need to make sure we understand that. It's not just what's happening here in AD 70, but it's a picture of what's coming at the end of the age. Paul, when he wrote the... Uh, first epistle of Thessalonians. 
he encourages the Thessalonians by giving praise to God for them. And he thanks God for them. And he tells them, I'm going to send Timothy to you for an encouragement. These people were distraught. They were scared. They have been reading the scriptures. They've been understanding what the scriptures are saying. They believe that God has sent his son, that the second coming has already occurred, and that the resurrection has already happened. They were concerned about their loved ones who had passed on through Christ. Paul's like, listen, I want you to understand that Christ will come back in chapter 4. He will descend down into the clouds and call us up there to be with him. Those of us who are alive and those of us who are not alive will be called first. He tells them it's, it's not happened yet. But he's talking about this in reference to the destruction of the temple. Okay? First Thessalonians or Thessalonians was written in the 50s, 80s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in there. So it's about 20 years out. Mm. So about 20 years out. So he tells them in chapter 5, starting at cha uh, in chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, verse 1, he says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. But you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And we know that that verse has been misused many times, talking about how fast Christ will come. That's not what Paul's saying here. It's going to catch you unaware. The return of the Lord is going to be a time when you're not expecting it. And he goes down in verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, as a helmet and the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Language, language sounds very familiar, doesn't it? If we look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14, it sounds very indicative of what Christ is talking about. And this is what Paul is doing. He's talking about the future, the near future of the destruction of the temple. And then he's also alluding to the end time judgment that will come. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about this man of lawlessness. Is it lawlessness concerning civil law? No. It's lawlessness concerning God's law. What is General Titus? He's a pagan. Does he care anything about God? No. 
Does he care anything about God's moral law? No. He just comes in and does what he pleases. For he is under the command of Caesar. So he comes in, establishes himself as supreme leader of the land without care to God's law. He is a man of lawlessness. Some people had asked me, uh, do you think there's going to be a future antichrist, this future man of lawlessness? I don't know. I mean, I, I may be wrong when I say this. I, I think it's more of a spirit of antichrist because we have many antichrist in this world today yeah. and it's growing it could be a man i'm not saying that there's not um, but as far as from what i have understood scriptures to say i have not seen that this there will be this man uh so-called single individual that will step out um and if he does then i stand corrected um, but from what i've read in scripture i believe that what paul is talking about this man's lawlessness this General Titus himself, as he destroys this temple. Paul had this in mind when he was comforting the Thessalonians. They were distraught. They were, they were scared. Man, has the resurrection happened or is it even going to happen? And Paul goes into detail across two epistles explaining to them. No, it hasn't. The temple has not been destroyed yet. We have to understand what does Paul say here in chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter five, uh, yeah, chapter five of First Thessalonians. We are not ignorant. We are sober-minded. How are we sober-minded? By understanding what the scriptures teach us, right? Reading the word of God. What does the word of God say? We're not fabricating some kind of get out of jail free card that pre-trib and dispensationalism teaches history is replete with example after example of God's people suffering and dying at the hands of ungodly men for their faith. Why do we think living on this side of the planet in this modern time that we're going to escape the, the hand of man or the wrath of man? We don't have that promise in the scripture. I have not seen that promise in the scripture. In fact, I've read many times, first, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter one, verse 29. We've been called to suffer, have we not? God gets glory from our suffering. And we overlook that. Pre-trib is just a man's way comforting himself, thinking that He's going to escape, and we do not have that promise. Our fathers and sisters and mothers before us did not escape it. We are not going to escape it. We're going to be persecuted. We are being persecuted for our faith. Every day in this nation, there's hatred mounting up even more against Christianity. We're bigots. We 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 hate people. We don't love. And as Jesse uh, stated this morning in Sunday school, what is love? We read in First Corinthians chapter 13 what love is. That's love, not toleration. Toleration is just appeasement. Appeasement leads to conflict. 
And that's exactly what happened with the Jews in Rome. Rome appeased the Jewish nation, allowed them to have their so-called mock government, little pop government, Herod. And then it got to the point where appeasement was not working anymore. And then utter straight out rebellion. And that's why from a human standpoint, as we look in history from a man's perspective, that's why Rome retaliated and destroyed Jerusalem. But we know that it was allowed to be done because Christ said it was going to be, right? He's over history, not man. Christ is over history. It's his story, not ours, his. We are all going to be judged. And this is what Christ is driving at. All things must be judged. Isn't that right, Lucas? All things have to be judged, right? All people have to be judged. And we will stand before that great white throne judgment. You're either in the hand crowd, if I may use it loosely, or you're not. And if you're not, then destruction awaits. Eternal destruction awaits. But Paul wanted us to make sure the people that he was ministering to understood that you're okay. No need to be alarmed. God has you. You're in his hands. He has not appointed us unto the day of wrath. We can look at antiquity. We can look at history. And those things to a point can be refuted. Even the evidence to some degree can be refuted. But the one thing that history antiquity, even the evidence itself cannot erase is that judgment is sure. Judgment is coming. I saw a interesting video of a uh, man who was an archaeologist. They found where Sodom and Gomorrah are located. And what's interesting is as they went to as he went to this these sites, you could see the 90-degree right angles of what remained of the buildings. And you could also see structures that once looked like pyramids, sphinxes, and so forth, that have been completely melted. But even more interesting, there are these balls that are all, all over the ground. Now, there is no natural explanation as to where these sulfur balls came from. There's not a volcano within 100 miles of that area, 1,000 miles of that area. The sulfur they found is not of the sulfur that is found on this planet. The sulfur that's on this planet has a purity of anywhere between 85 to maybe 89% pure, maybe less. I may have the numbers wrong on that. But they tested the purity of the sulfur balls found at the sites of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was 94 to 99.9% pure. He lit one up with a match, and you should have seen the flame that was coming off of that sulfur ball. It was so purple, it was almost translucent. You couldn't even see it. It was just amazing to me. The world sees things of, of this nature and they say, well, you know, that's just a coincidence, or they can maybe prove it in other ways. The one thing they can't refute is the fact that judgment is sure and it's coming. Men know this. They suppress the truth. 
they suppress it to the point that they don't want to think about it. It lays heavy upon a man's heart when he has violated God's law. When he has violated God's law, he knows that he stands on the opposite side of God being condemned already. He knows his conscience is heavy, can't sleep. I worked with nurses, worked third shift, and over 80% of them on some type of medication to help them sleep because they can't escape that conscience. Just gnaws away at them. And I've had them tell me that. I've got to shut my brain off. I go to bed, I lay there, and my brain is just doing this continually. I said, well, what do you think about? Everything. And they wouldn't ever tell me exactly what they thought about but I know what they're thinking about. I worked in a unit, rubbed shoulders up with death. Death was a frequent visitor to my unit. You can't rub up against the shoulders of death and not walk out of there and not be affected by that. If I was affected by it, I know they were being affected by it. Just couldn't admit it. There's something about death staring at people, even if we are not in the bed dying. There's something about death that it causes a man or a person to think. It causes us to think about our own mortality. When I was a teenager, I used to think, and I'm sure as the rest of you, I used to think about how I'm going to live forever. But then I turned uh, 30 and that was out the window really quick. I'm not going to live forever. That reality bit me square dead in the face. So Paul here is telling his people, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. God has provided a way. He has not appointed this unto wrath. Jesus is telling the disciples, see that time coming. Don't wait till you see that dust coming up over the hill. You better be moving. You better be getting out of there. You don't have time. Because when Paul comes, I mean, excuse me, when Caesar comes or Titus comes, it's going to be overwhelmingly destructive. Nobody will be able to escape. So what makes this judgment that's coming in AD 70 and the judgment to come, what makes this a reality? It's the resurrection of Christ that makes it a reality. All the religions in the world boast of their leaders being in the ground, being buried here in this spot. We are the only faith in this world that we don't have, our leader is not in the ground. But because of his resurrection, it's the reason why judgment is coming. People, I've heard people tell me when we look at John, and they talk about the gospel, that he came to present the gospel. The judgment was nowhere near in the gospel. That's the fathers from the truth. That is the fathers from the truth. In John chapter 3, John chapter 3, 18, I believe it is. He says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light 
for their deeds or evil. Because of the resurrection, judgment is a reality. It's coming. It is coming. We live in, in a time when we flip on the TV or we hear in the news storms raging through the West, destroying homes, tornadoes, E4 and 5 tornadoes that are so wide that it blots out the sun, just utterly wiping things out, hurricanes hitting the coast, earthquakes hitting different places, tsunamis taking people out, washing out cities for miles, and then we hear the upheaval of nations going against nations. We flip on that and we just numb to it. We're numb to it. The sign is passing by. It's hitting us in the face and we just blow it off. They are all just little mini judgments, as Danny pointed out. They're just snapshots of what's coming. And Christ gives us this beautiful analogy of like, it's, it's like birth pangs of a woman in labor. They come in waves. They're successive, and of which eventually the baby comes out. It's a, a painful experience. And this is what Christ is talking about. We get these little so-called mini judgments that are happening. They're painful because why? Loss of life. People not heeding the warnings of God not repenting, not returning to him or coming to him, continuing on through their simple ways. The resurrection of Christ is the very hinge point here. It is the reason for the legitimization of the judgment. Without the resurrection, there would be no return, no, nor reason for our faith. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, we would be a people most pitied if Christ had not arisen from the grave. The resurrection of Christ is the very thing that separates us from the rest of the world, as I noted before. And in the book of Acts, chapter 1, the apostles are standing there. They're watching Jesus go up into the sky. Verses 9 through 11 says, and after he, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The resurrection of Christ ensures that there will be a return. It goes away, I'm coming back to you. And this time, it's not with love and peace. Come to me, but it will be with the sword. So as we close here, uh, I want to remind us that the message of our text stands as a warning to unbelievers. But it serves as an encouragement to us. Our God is coming back. He's coming back for his people. And on that day of judgment, we're going to be vindicated. All the things that have been slurred at, uh, slung at us, all the wrongs, all that's going to be taken care of. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I've never been so mad in my entire life when I watched the O.J. Simpson case. I, you know, I, I really wanted to hurt a man, but 
God reminded me that vengeance is his. And there's going to be a day when they're going to have to pay. They're going to have to pay. It beckons us. Those of us who are on the middle of the fence, it beckons us uh, to get off of that middle and embrace the word of God and continue to look at Christ as our security and our safety. I also speak to those here this morning that may not be believers. You know the word of God is true. You know it is true because of the guilt that is upon your heart. Let me add, too, the very guilt that you may be experiencing is due to the suppression of the truth of God's word upon your life. You wrestle with the notion of loving the world and dealing with the conviction of God's truth about your life. But let me encourage you this morning. Don't waste time. Don't put it off. It's not an altar call. It's not uh, a message that fire and brimstone is going to fall on your head today. But wouldn't it be a tragedy to leave out, get in your car, and not make it home? Don't put it off. Is it comfortable as God's word hits you square dead in the face? Is it is it a comfortable feeling? No. Is it a, is it something that we try to squirm out of? Yes. Yes. God's truth does not hit like a pillow on your head. It hurts. It exposes us for who we are. And you need that exposure. That darkness that's in our heart has to be exposed, has to be dealt with. It cannot live in a believer dancing with the world. As Jesse has noted many times, the world is enmity with God. You can't love the world and love God. You're going to either love one or hate the other. Get off the fence. Get off the fence. If you're not in the word of God, only except for on Sundays. Get into the word of God. Feed your soul, feed your spirit. We eat food to sustain our health, right? If we go without food, we fall over, right? Die. Go without water, we die. Go without the word of God, our spirit dies. We feast upon the word of God. Let the reader understand. Do not be misled from every little whim of doctrine that comes along that is not of the word of God. No other way, no other person can save you. There's only salvation in one and one only. That is through Christ Jesus. It is through his finished atoning work for us and through him alone. And finally, Christ's prophetic warning to the disciples speaks to us concerning, as I've mentioned before, all will be judged. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we look at we look at this, these verses this morning. You have pointed out to us that there's only one sign which are many snapshots of judgment 
upon this world. You have told us that whatever, you have told your disciples that uh, whatever they're doing, wherever they're at, they need to go. And God forbid it be on a Sabbath or in the winter, which would make the travel even more difficult. And even for those women who are in labor or with babies, nonetheless, you've commanded to go. And Lord, as we see that time approaching, give us the strength and the grace not to linger, but to go. Give us the strength and grace, Lord, as the time approaches to be bold with your word to those who are in need. Lord, we oftentimes walk out um, from church. We feel uh, empowered by your spirit, emboldened by your spirit. But then when we face the world and we hear the taunts, we hear the, uh, the hatred and the anger, we tend to get afraid. Lord, you have said in your word that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but you have given us a spirit of adoption as sons, as sons of God. Lord, we have nothing to fear. Put that to rest. Give us the strength and the grace to go forward, Lord, for you, for your glory, for your sake. In Christ's name, amen.